Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. It's nice to get fired twice in the same year. Yeah, from the same job. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's my uh, it's my mandatory vacation. Yep, exactly what we thought would happen. Thanks to everybody that went to Myrtle Beach. What yep. the fuck is so good in Myrtle Beach? Oh, it wasn't Myrtle Beach. It was Florida. <sighs> like I said on the last episode, we need a DMZ between Florida and Georgia. Now we have to add a no-fly zone. Of all the things that that one could do, like I don't care where you live in Pittsburgh, like nothing is better in like Tampa Bay. Nothing's no. better in Myrtle Beach. Like, nothing's no, better than no. Ocean City. So how about we, we take that wall concept and we just build it above the panhandle and then we just trade Puerto Rico for Florida. Kyle, I've been saying that for years. Yeah, this Literally this shit for ain't years. New. We said put, it in Florida. Put, 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 a, put a giant chain link fence around the whole thing and give it back to the alligators. <laughs> Do you think yeah, Spain we, would take it back? I think the Contra Republic would just expand. Oh. That's, why haven't we done a Cog Republic episode? I don't why know. We, let's do one of those. That should be fun. Oh, I don't know. No, back. That, well, no, that's where you install uh, Gregor McGregor's imaginary country. <laughs> there we oh, go. Man. What the hell was Already it got the national anthem. Um, I, I'm, I'll Google it. Talk yeah. amongst yourselves. It was, uh, no, I know what this is. I'm not Googling or anything. <laughs> as he hammers away yeah, the keyboard. We, we click, remember click, the click, things click. we did extensive research about less hey, than Hey, look, I got, I got double fired. I've been drinking for like 40 hours. <laughs> I don't remember most of last episode. Uh, Gregor McGregor is described on the internet as a confidence trickster. <laughs> confidence trickster. <laughs> what, 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 what is he, a fake creature? Noise? I'm sorry, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> confidence trickster. I think I got that magic card. Changeling. Changeling. Gregor McGregor. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, we. Well, uh, I think that's because you're not allowed to say "fucking asshole" on Wikipedia. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Kazik. It was Poyas. Yeah. He, was, he became Kazik. Poyas. Poyas. That was what it was. Uh, well, and uh, the currency was the hard dollar. Yeah. <laughs> it had his fucking picture on it. Like, what an asshole that dude was. Oh man. But yeah, we. Oh, yeah, man, political we, we, leaders who slap their names on things definitely will never uh, actually we, rise to real success. But you mentioned it; we did get real boozed up for the last episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, some of us did. Well, some <laughs> of us did. Kyle went real squinty real fast. Yeah, some of us did. And a, and a lot of you may not know him personally, but that's his tell. I mean, it, it's everybody's tell. I'll never win a poker yeah. game again. Thank but you. Yeah, it's 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 particularly squinty. But you Kyle. can watch it happen with Kyle in real time. It goes from like, Kyle to French eat, Stewart in legacy <laughs> fucking split. I, I'm glad to see you're still at, uh, rocking the Alan Rickman. Yeah, I trained it, and I got a haircut, so I look less homeless. But but uh, yeah, uh, I shave my head, and yeah. I look even. I, I look exactly as homeless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. This week, without special guest French Stewart. Uh, hopefully, Kyle does hopefully. have a beer in his hand. Hopefully, if it happens again, I'm just gonna chuck him out back. But well, last, like, well, last time was the stuff. first time we. Well, last time was the first time the four of us had gotten together in three plus months. So, so here's what I don't understand: yeah. for the quantity of alcohol time. I've been consuming. <clears throat> by yeah, that's what I was thinking. My tolerance yeah. is worse than it's ever been. 
Hmm. I, I don't and know. you were drinking it's, beer. It's not like we were we were doing uh, a couple rippies. I stole some of Padre's not, whiskey. Yeah, uh, a couple yeah that, was a, that was a Maker's Mark night. Oh, um, uh, yeah. That's why I had to stay here for an extra two hours, because I do not drink drive drunk. Yeah, you had the uh, the, the requisite, like, should I or shouldn't I? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, again, don't drive drunk. Uh, you can't afford it. Well, um, before the drinking continues, we should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I'm Michael Ernett. I'm Kyle Graver. A.K.A. French Stewart and two more beers. <laughs> Thankfully, so, I yes. only have one in front of me. Yes, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. So, the topic today, over the last month or so, we've been hearing a lot regarding things we should have learned about in school but didn't, such as the uh, 1921 Black Wall Street Massacre in Tulsa, uh, Juneteenth, um, the 13th Amendment, so many other stories that get lost when history curriculum gets, for lack of a better term, whitewashed. And today's story definitely fits that mold. Now, I didn't know about this man and his story until I saw a plaque and a small museum display in Charleston, South Carolina, last year. And while I'd heard the name a few times, I'm ashamed to say that it took me until the age of 31 to find out anything about him. That man's name is Robert Smalls. Robert Smalls' story is one of the most remarkable I've ever heard. Escaping slavery during the Civil War by stealing a Confederate warship going to work for the Union Army and Navy, and going on to have a remarkable career as a politician and civil rights advocate during the latter half of the 19th century. He definitely is is owner of coolest shit that somebody stole so far. Yep. Because we've talked about a lot of, like, stolen conveyance. So, it's, I mean, it's like him and then... Boeing 727 in the case of E.B. Cooper. Yeah, I was going to say, it's him and then Cooper, right? Or is the train cooler? Because, like, it's a train. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a but it was, train. but yeah, it's that's true. But it, it had a shitload of fucking money on it. That's fair. Yeah. So it was a wealthy train, <laughs> more than TV Cooper's plane did. Yeah. Although they, they I mean, did but not the, eat themselves out of. Yeah, I was gonna feet. say, but but did they jump out and that literally get ripped apart? <laughs> <laughs> Just squeaking onto the front front windshield of a fighter jet tailing the plane. Um, well, it's funny that you talk about. They, <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry, but I, I, in one of the sources I had, it was. Uh, a YouTube video compiled by these guys. I think they were they work with like, within a university, but they just kind of like had fun with it. And they threw a DB Cooper like a, a man sized mono like a mannequin into a wind tunnel. Yeah, and it's the funniest shit the entire fucking world. Like there's turbulence there, so it would be like the like the jet wash. The first thing that happens is the shoes get sucked off. <laughs> and I don't know why it was so funny to me that like clothes are tattered. Like one of the arms came off. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It, it should not be that fight, but the fact that as soon as it went, the guy's shoes just gone. Blew off. Yeah. It, like, in slow motion, it's gone. But yeah. anyway, we digress, and we're talking about well, Robert Smalls, and this dude is fucking awesome. Well, and the, and the funny thing is, is I'm, I grew up in a family of Civil War buffs. I, my dad well, I'm a and Civil I... I'm a Civil War buff myself, yeah. My, my I haven't reached that part of my midlife me. crisis yet, but it's coming. My, my dad has dragged me around to almost every major battlefield on... In, in, in Virginia, at least, um, not to mention some in Georgia and South Carolina. And I had to research, mm-hmm. not this particular episode, I knew about this story, but I didn't know about this right away. Yeah. And you're talking about the whitewashing of history. I've got an entire bookshelf dedicated to Civil War books. Yeah. And you never hear about this guy. And yeah, so and, and normally the individuals we cover on this podcast are a mixed bag of misunderstood rebels, anti-heroes, lowlifes, straight-up visions, vi- villains, excuse me, or just general ne'er-do-wells. But we're flipping the script a little bit today, and we're talking about a man who is—I mean—he is the definition of a hero. 
Yeah, now, this is in, and this is, I, I guess he would technically fall under rogue. Oh, yeah. But I yeah. mean, uh, the man. Well, one could be a rogue and be a total hero. Yeah, the, this is, he's definitely not like a, a thief. Or no. Maybe renegade? Nah, but like, yeah. yeah, this dude's fucking fantastic. I mean, he's two, he's, yeah, he's two of the three of our, of our purview, I think. Right. But in an excellent, excellent way. And we figured that it's an appropriate time to tell this story, and we hope you get as much of a thrill about hearing it for the first time as we did while we researched this episode. Uh, before we get into the uh, story, I want to talk about some of the sources that were used for this episode. The first is From Slavery to Public Service, the story of Robert Smalls by Okon Edet Uya. This was the first book published about Robert Smalls. It was published in 1971 with the New York University Press. Uh, the second one is a more recent work. The, it's called Be Free or Die, The Amazing Story of Robert Small's Journey from Slavery to Union Hero by Kate Lineberry. Um, I highly recommend going online and looking at her C-SPAN interview about this book. Wait, I thought um, Be Free or Die was about haircuts and AR-15s. Was, was I mistaken? It was the fourth Die Hard. Mm. Yeah, oh, it was the fourth okay. Die Hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you should know that, Hans Gruber. <laughs> oh, God, no. Please, God. I have an amazing ability to talk without letting my lips touch my teeth. <laughs> so, also, with Be Free or Die, there is yeah. a, um, um, if you want to get online, there is a Smithsonian Magazine yes. article that is incredible. It That's actually where I pulled I have that up right now. It's yeah. where I pulled almost all my sources. Um, uh, if you guys don't like necessarily subscribe to the Smithsonian Magazine, but like seriously, go through there. The articles are totally yeah. digestible. Yeah. They, Look, they put out a lot of very, very good stuff. Yeah, most of their stuff you can read in five or six minutes. Mm-hmm. Like there, There's a couple like 7,000 word like monsters in there, but they're they're fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we have one more uh, book the uh, uh, that I used. Uh, it's called Southern Black Leaders of the Reconstruction Era by Howard Rabinowitz. And then, as we just mentioned, we have a series of uh, articles, features, uh, podcast episodes, some of them contemporary to the events that we'll discuss in this story. The the articles, of course, not the podcast episodes. Podcasts from the mid-1860s are notoriously hard to come by. (laughs) The wax doesn't hold up very well. (laughs) I was was going to say. Well, you know Abraham Lincoln said, don't believe everything you read on the internet. So he's truly ahead of his time. (laughs) Any points of order, gentlemen, before we get into the story? Uh, I think we should hit the ground running because because uh, this guy is is one of the cooler people that we're probably ever going to oh, talk yeah. about. I, yeah. I I knew that he was an escaped slave turned politician, but I didn't know that like he went like, like full Fast and the Furious. This, this is somebody who definitely gets points for style. Yeah, like whenever you say he's an escaped slave, you're burying the lead. Yes, a little bit. So Robert Smalls was born on the fifth of April, eighteen thirty nine, into slavery. He was the son of a woman named Lydia Polite, who was enslaved by a man named Henry McKee Sr., a prosperous merchant and businessman. He was born in a ramshackle cabin behind the McKee house at 511 Prince Street in a small but prosperous town of Beaufort, South Carolina. Spelled Beaufort, but pronounced Beaufort. Beaufort. Thank you, Michael. Yeah, we had, we had our, uh, our man on the ground. Yes, yes indeed. Today. Yeah. Uh, it is not noted in any source who Robert's father was, but it is likely that his father was either Henry McKee Sr., or his eldest son, Henry McKee Jr. This is, of course, something that happened with distressing regularity, the fathering of children by slave owners with their female slaves. And, you know, even one or more U.S. presidents got in on that trend. There is a point that they make at Monticello, um, to be fair to President Jefferson, that Sally Hemings, um, was not, Sally Hemings' baby was not fathered 
by Thomas himself. It was probably his younger brother, Frank, who was kind of a waterhead from everything that I understand. I'm sorry if that's offensive, but... I don't um, actually have any clue what that means. Oh, that's an old one. Oh, I mean, it's a, yeah, I mean, it might be. He was he was kind of a weird dude. He We may wind up doing an episode on it, but I'm, I'm just saying, to be fair, and I understand what you're what you're saying as far as mm-hmm. uh, slave owners doing that and yeah. being common, common practice. Well, Jefferson wasn't the only president who owned yeah. slaves. Right. Yeah. That's true. Quite a few of them did. How did yeah. they come the first one did. Uh, through they've been testing the DNA. They have the bones of the Hemings family. Can the Hemings family is is uh, buried on Monticello's plantation. Can you plantation. separate brother from brother like that? I think you can. With modern techniques, you can yeah. actually you actually can maybe uh, well because there are now certain genetic markers that even um, siblings huh. they can tell the difference. That's fascinating. Yeah, but uh, so yeah, so the theory of. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know. I know we talked earlier how we we're going. To, we're actively trying to pare down locker room talk, but I was going to say there are a lot of modern techniques I've seen for pairing step siblings, but it's usually just on the internet. Eighty-five <laughs> percent of porn. This, uh, this, this I'm episode sorry, is guys. I tried to keep it high. Oh no, I don't. We don't want to be affiliated with these days. So they're not so good. good. All right, getting this train back on the tracks really early. So, so the theory about Robert's fatherhood is backed up by the fact that both Robert and his mother seem to enjoy a position of relative favor within the McKee household, relative being the operative word here. Lydia had, been, had grown up working the fields, but by the time she became pregnant with Robert, she was working as a servant in the house, and when Robert reached the age of about six or seven, he began to do the same because a position of favor within a slave-owning household doesn't mean that your life is at all easy. He wasn't educated, and he grew up illiterate and was forced to begin working from a young age, as most slave children were. Lydia, however, worried that Robert might not grow up thinking that the plight, uh, uh, thinking, or might not grow up understanding the plight of the slaves who were forced to work in the fields, and she managed to talk McKee into having Robert take turns working in the fields outside Beaufort and making sure that he was present to witness the horrific punishments that slaves would be forced to endure, including whippings, beatings, and various forms of torture for relatively small offenses. She also raised him within the he- uh, with the heavily, uh, heavy influence of the coastal Gullah culture of African Americans along the coastal lowlands of the southern Atlantic, which would serve him well later in his life. This is something that I talked about yesterday with Mike. Um, the decision that she made to, to make him understand the plight of the slaves in the field um, and to take him from, I mean, he was obviously, he was a clear favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it, we're not just saying a position of favor. He was obviously a favorite of these of this family. Which again points to the fact that one of the McKees was likely yeah. his father. Right. Uh, but what she did with that one decision to, to make him understand what was happening to black people um, influenced every single thing and yeah. dictated what's going to happen for the rest of his life. And essentially every single decision that he makes. Yeah, that was her kicking that tiny little yeah. snowball yeah. at the top of the mountain. It, it shows her loyalties never left people in her similar plight. Right. She, you know, she might have had a little bit of privilege in comparison, but her heart was still with, you know, those of a similar circumstance. Yeah. It's just and, incredible, frankly. And what will happen, you know, what we'll find out happens later. He may have enjoyed the relative comfort, never done what he had done, and what, what intelligence, what military intelligence would the uh, United States Navy have not garnered? If this guy that's, doesn't that's do this stuff, that, that we will I mean, that's, you know, 
Yeah, let's not. Yeah. Let's no, not I'm not trying to. This is when he goes more uh, Jamie Foxx and less Sam Jackson and Django. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the one thing that became. Uh. <laughs> 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 Sorry, buddy. Sorry. I love that movie. So the one thing that became clear as he got a little older was that Robert was an extraordinarily bright child with a talent for understanding all things mathematical and mechanical. Once he began to approach his teen years, this became a source of tension with the McKees, who saw young Robert as a bit too intelligent and curious. Now again, Lydia used her position and influence with the family to get Robert sent up the coast to South Carolina's largest city, Charleston, in 1851. Robert was 12 years old. In Charleston, Robert would be hired as a laborer because the McKees were one of those worst kinds of families who had more slaves than they needed, and he would work for companies that needed the extra labor, and those companies would then pay the McKees as well as paying Robert. Now, before we all go, oh, he was paid a dollar a week uh, to work sun up to sundown, seven days a week with an hour for church services on Sundays. That's the equivalent today of making about $4,500 a year working 80 to 90 hours a week. Yeah. Could you imagine how much richer, richer Bezos would be if this was an option? <laughs> yeah, uh, Jeff, if you're listening, man, don't do it. Or are we kidding? He's listening. <laughs> yeah, he's definitely listening. Yeah. We're going to get doxxed again. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. But it's, it, it, it's just my house is already circled by like the Amazon Prime trucks. There's like Amazon Prime library <laughs> helicopters circling <laughs> jackbooted thugs. But uh, yeah, that's, that's the equivalent of making about a dollar an hour. So Robert worked in turn as a hotel waiter, a lamplighter on Charleston streets, and as a warehouse laborer. But as he moved further into his teen years, he became clear that he had a talent and an interest in all things nautical. And his work moved him towards Charleston's large wharves and docks. He worked as a longshoreman, a sailing rigger, a sailmaker, and by the age of 16 years old in 1855, he began working as a wheelman, which is basically a ship's pilot, but of course, only white men are allowed to hold that title. Mm. Now, if you don't know what a ship's pilot does, a pilot is a specialized sailing role where an individual helps maneuver ships through congested or hazardous waters, such as harbors, canal systems, or river mounts. Uh, while a navigator is a dedicated part of one ship's crew and helps guide its voyages from start to finish, a pilot is usually an independent sailor who is brought aboard a vessel as it enters or leaves an area and has a particular knowledge of local waters. Uh, say, for example, Mike's old vessel, the USS Gettysburg, is making a goodwill visit to the port of Veracruz, Mexico. The ship's nav crew will get her there and deal with the routing and the various hazards at sea, but as she approaches the port, a small boat carrying a local pilot will approach, the pilot will come aboard, get the Gettysburg through the harbor safely to its point at the docks, and will get a check for their services courtesy of the DOD. And for that, several hours, like, well, with New York City, New York City is an eight-hour sea and anchor detail. Mm -hmm. They because the 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 channel is so narrow, starting way way out. They they have an actual an actual seafaring tugboat that brings the pilot out. Yeah. When the pilot gets on board, he becomes the captain. He becomes the yep. commanding officer yep. of the vessel. Our our skipper. Yeah. Has to sit back. This is how good these pilots are. Yeah. And they are. To this day, they are the lifeblood of uh, the Merchant Marine, the Coast Guard, and the United States yeah. Navy. Or, well, any Navy. Incredible. Yeah. See, one of my, um, I have an uncle who's a tugboat captain in the Port of Wilmington, and it's, yeah, I mean, they're incredibly talented people. Yeah, and the only way that a pilot's word gets overridden is if immediate security concerns demand it. Right. Yeah. Or, right. Yeah. or and in very rare cases, um, like the movie Cabin Boy. 
for example. There it is. <laughs> there it is. Wow. Come on, get it over with. Ooh. Fucking get it over with. Uh, whenever the the ice monster mm. uh, should should like board the vessel, then you can spray him down with coffee. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but that was the cabin boy's idea, uh, and he ended up ultimately saving the day. And it's also from, seen, from the still, manager from the movie Major League. Still seen this and, 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 and also, I'm to just bring gonna up, fucking buy it. Like it, it's like four dollars. I don't know why I haven't bought like it. Like two years ago, we were supposed to do a Patreon episode to do a live review of. That's wow. That's before wow. you were on board. Wow. We didn't quit going over our shortcomings. Yes. <laughs> and, and, Thanks, well, man. I really appreciate it. Any, any other dirty laundry? Like I didn't. I didn't pass my driver's test the first time. I didn't do it either. The my other. Own. There is another exception to bring up films. There is another another exception. If your pilot happens to be either Gary Busey or Tommy Lee Jones. Ah. There's there we go. <laughs> so over the next seven years, Robert Smalls would serve as a pilot on the many trading vessels that ply their way around the waters near Charleston and the many islands, inlets, rivers, and channels that can be found around the city and up and down the South Carolina coast. He would gain invaluable knowledge of local waters and rely upon an almost superhuman memory of landmarks and features but in spite of all this talent, he was still a slave owned by the McKee family who sold Robert's talent and services to Charleston's harbor master and local ship captains. He's just like the NCAA. Cool. <laughs> I mean, oh, yeah. yeah. That was a little. Yeah. yeah. Was he, was he a guess. student athlete? Fuck that shit. <laughs> so at the age of 17, Robert got married to an enslaved hotel maid named Hannah Jones on Christmas Eve 1856, a woman who was five years Robert's senior and already had two daughters who, according to biographers and historians, were likely fathered by her owner. I was going to make another Pornhub reference. I was going to say it went from step-siblings to milf face, but I'm not going to do it because we said that we were going to stop talking about pornography. I'm so glad stuff. you didn't bring it up at all. Well, I wasn't going to. say we were going to start. Just stop. Robert, we said this on the recording where beforehand we just acknowledged that these are our fallings, <laughs> we're going to deal with them. Robert and Hannah would go on to have three children of their own, a daughter named Elizabeth in 1858, a son named Robert Jr. in 1861, and a daughter named Sarah in 1863. Now, marriages between black slaves are another factor that has often been overlooked in the history curriculum, and books on the subject are packed with the stories of sadness that tinge these marriages, as the couples could easily be broken up through transfer and sale, so much so that the wedding vows that slaves would take included the line, until death or distance parts us. As such, Robert loved Hannah and her, his children and became determined, as many slaves did, to purchase their freedom in order to prevent their separation. The asking price, however, was steep. $800. That's about $23.5 in today's money. Now, while Robert was making more as a pilot than the original dollar a week he'd been given when he first came to Charleston, by the spring of 1861, he'd managed to save only about $100. However, events on a much wider scale would intervene with his plans. I, I, for... The price of a human being was the price of my Honda Civic. Yes, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Now, all of these events in Robert Small's life were set against the national background of rising tensions in the high drama of the late antebellum period as the United States got closer and closer to the breaking point over the issue of slavery, and South Carolina, and Charleston in particular, was at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Now, South Carolina had been a state where pro-slavery voices rang very loud indeed, being home to vocal supporters of the practice like John Calhoun and Preston Brooks, the man who nearly beat an abolitionist senator named Charles Sumner to death with a cane on the floor of the U.S. Senate. It's an excellent, excellent piece of, piece of art, and it's still yeah. hanging in state buildings. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> South Carolina... And we think, we think our political discourse right now is heated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. South Carolina also had the largest percentage of slaves relative to its population of any state, 
with about 50%, uh, 57% of its inhabitants being enslaved and the largest percentage of white families who owned slaves at 46%. One of the things that I love about the lost cause mentality, which is complete and utter bullshit, mm, agreed. is the idea that they're whitewashing it with the idea that the war wasn't about slavery. It wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. States' rights to what? <laughs> the, <laughs> yeah. What, yeah. what exactly when did you they read, want to own? They're, they're, they're fine. My, my father actually pointed this out to me when I was in high school. There are five paragraphs written in the South Carolina Secession Order. Yeah. Four of them specifically mention the peculiar institution. Yes. Let's not forget what this thing was about. Well, all you have to do is read the text of Alexander Stevens' big speech. And who hasn't done that? <laughs> no, I, I, if you haven't read it, I've got it. that in my back pocket. <laughs> so, well, we could do a whole series on the events of the antebellum that led to the emergence of the Confederacy. But and let's we that. probably will. Yeah, but uh, we're going to save that for another time <laughs> and just say that on December 17, 1860, South Carolina was the first state to secede from the <clears throat> Union over the issue of slavery. It wasn't the first to join the Confederacy but it, and was known in the interim as the Palmetto Republic, but on February 4, 1861, it became the sixth state to join the Confederate States of America. The South Carolina militia was called out to expel what federal troops there were in the state, and by the beginning of 1861, Major Robert Anderson, commander of U.S. troops in Charleston, had withdrawn his men to the small island holdout of Fort Sumter. The militia, as well as students from the Citadel Military College, took over the shoreline forts and batteries and trained the guns on Fort Sumter. The first acts of war also took place in Charleston. First, uh, on January 9th, 1861, when a ship from New York supplying the fort was fired upon and forced to turn back. And then on April 12th, when the bombardment of Fort Sumter began. There is an astounding amount of important shit that happened at Fort Sumter. Yeah. And Charleston. An astounding yeah. amount of important it, shit happened at Sumter. What's amazing is how small it is. Mm -hmm. People don't realize It's still very much there. Moultrie, Fort Moultrie and Mount Pleasant and Fort Sumter, you're thinking of these great things, you know, these, these, these great forts because in, in your mind's eye you get this picture of this was such a cataclysmic event that happened. Yeah. They're tiny. It, uh, it, it is, in, in the scheme of things, this, Charleston Harbor is very small. Fort Sumter isn't that much bigger than a baseball diamond. Yeah, pretty much. No, I mean, they're Fort Sumter goes from yeah. dugout to dugout at PNC yeah. Park. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's, yeah, it's not that big at all. So, yeah, so the 60 men in the fort were fired upon for 34 hours by over 6,000 South Carolina troops before Major Anderson raised the white flag. <coughs> now, Sally... The men in Fort Sumter didn't suffer any losses until during the 50-gun salute they fired to mark the taking down of the U.S. flag, a gun exploded, killing a young soldier, the first Union battle casualty of the war. Now, as a wider military conflict between North and South became inevitable, in addition to calling out the state militia, volunteer regiments were raised all throughout South Carolina, but in addition, many thousands of slaves were forced to take a direct role in the war effort, including thousands in Charleston itself. Robert Smalls was no exception. He was assigned to a role in the new fledgling Confederate Navy. Now, the Confederate Navy is an interesting little beast. Um, it was mostly made up of civilian ships converted for military use, uh, ships designed for asymmetrical warfare like the Hunley, and then whatever federal warships they could seize, as well as uh, blockade runners and little... Were, it was a bunch of dinghies. Let's yeah, it, yeah, they were armed yeah. fishing boats. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. The bulk of it, I mean... 
up until the monitor and the Merrimack, oh, there really oh. wasn't a lot of like, well, like large-scale naval engagement. Well, and then the Union Navy. So the Union Navy, at the outset of war, decides we need to blockade all the southern ports we can. It was part of what was called the Anaconda Strategy. Except the Union Navy at the outset <laughs> of the war. Don't want none. Except the Union Navy at the start of the war only had about 55 ships, which is not nearly enough to do the job. But in a, within a year, the Union Navy had over 480 armed vessels, 350 of which were taking part in the blockade of Southern Ports. It's amazing it's, what happens when your half of the split has um, all, the money, all of the all means the people, of production. All the industry. Yeah. All the yeah. industry. And... Yeah. How did they ever when, when even Shelby Foote admits the South could have never won the war. Right, yeah, seriously. Um, but the one thing, like, if you look at the numbers and the expansion of, of like, just take it as, like, naval supremacy, how much faster and and the amount of, of manpower and what is yielded by that is so much higher than the revolution. Mm-hmm. Like, it, like, so much greater. This is how much the country has changed in a hundred years. Yeah. Like, how much... That, from an industrial standpoint, how much can be brought to bear? Also, interesting point of fact: first major American war, where at least for the Union, privateers didn't go out in droves. Yeah. Huh. Well, in the, uh, the South, there, there were the South, I would say the South didn't necessarily do the same thing. Well, like, like I mentioned, asymmetrical warfare on right. behalf of the Confederate Navy. Well, something that I've heard brought up multiple times, as far as the Navy and sea warfare that you have to understand is the ocean is just a road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, it, it's really not like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not like an army where you can take a position and hold it and keep it there. The purpose of naval combat is to disrupt channels, yeah. disrupt communication lines, disrupt uh, merchant lines. And that's really what ended up killing the South. Yeah. You know, not only did they not have the means of production, they didn't have any kind of distribution channel once those 350 ships started. It, it's also because the, the North had like 4,000 more miles of railroad track. Exactly. A lot more than that by the end of the war. But yeah, Jose, that's, at the, out, 40, that's at the outset of yeah. the fucking yeah. war. So, as part of the new Confederate fleet, Smalls was assigned as the steersman and pilot of the CSS Planter, a military transport and dispatch boat that originally been a cotton shipping vessel. Now, the planter was relatively small, clocking in only at about 320 tons burthen, uh, mounting two cannons on swiveling platforms, and a, she was about 150 feet long, but she was steam-powered and side-wheel propelled, and in the many rivers, inlets, and tidal channels along the South Carolina coast, her very shallow draft of less than four feet That's meant that she could go many places that other vessels couldn't. Also, at least by 1860s standards, she was dead quiet. Mm-hmm. To, to give you an idea of how light a craft that is, Gettysburg, which is, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty big boat. Mm-hmm. She drafts 30 feet. Yeah. yeah a pontoon boat. Yeah. A, a pontoon party boat drafts about two and a half. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, and, and this is a boat that just is plywood with some chairs on it. Yeah. Right. Well, the, um, the the USS New Ironsides, which was one of the more uh, advanced frigates of the U.S. Navy at that time, um, I believe she had a draft of something like 22 and a half feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this gives you yeah. an idea of where the planter can go. And especially in this kind of environment, yeah. it, it, that's invaluable. We've talked about Charleston in a couple of other podcasts. Yeah. Um, 
but Charleston Harbor is another one. Um, like a lot, uh, a lot that happened near the Outer Banks. There's a lot of moving shoals. Yeah, uh, Charleston Harbor is very, very large, but it's very, very shallow, yeah. and yeah. it's unpredictable. Yeah. So yeah. If you got a map from ten years ago. It's probably not very accurate. Right, and and even today, uh, the large uh, the large cargo ships that uh, port in Charleston actually have to wait for high tide. Yeah. They do. Yeah, because they get one shot of draft. If you yeah. if you've ever been yeah. to Charleston, there's mm-hmm. a lot of traffic waiting out there. It looks yeah. and it probably looks a lot like the blockade did. Yeah. So uh, the planter had a small crew of about a dozen men, of whom all but three white officers were slaves conscripted into the war effort. Now the planter was put to work from Savannah to Wilmington, ferrying men, arms, and supplies throughout the region, carrying messages, and most importantly, surveying defense zones and laying explosive mines. While the planter kept close to the coast, as she wasn't terribly suited to open water, Smalls and the other slaves on board could often see in the distance the shapes of warships, because the larger and stronger U.S. Navy, of course, had the region heavily blockaded. Robert Smalls appeared to all outside observers to be content with his lot and had the confidence and trust of the planter's crew and owners, but in those ship silhouettes, Smalls saw one thing, freedom. He began to formulate an escape plan, confiding in all the other enslaved members of the planter's crew except for one, whom Smalls didn't trust, and on May 12, 1862, he began to put that plan into action. On that day, the planter traveled 10 miles south of Charleston Harbor to pick up four large artillery pieces at Coles Island in the Stono River where a Confederate battery was being dismantled in order to transfer the guns back up to, they, uh, this didn't work out, but they tried to rearm Castle Pinckney mm-hmm. in uh in Charleston Harbor, and if you've ever been past Castle Pinckney, you understand why that was kind of a fool's errand. <laughs> it's it's still overgrown. Oh, absolutely. There's, there's a couple of buildings out there, and it's just they they've let the the earth take it back. Privately owned too. Yeah. Is it really privately owned by the Daughters of the Confederacy? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, maybe they have to part it out now. They're speaking <laughs> of lost cause. Yeah. So back yeah, their in Charleston, got torched. So back in Charleston, the planter picked up twenty quarts of firewood and two hundred pounds of rifle ammunition and then docked for the night at the North Atlantic Wharf, right below the headquarters of the commander of the forces of Charleston, Brigadier General Roswell Ripley. The, uh, you usual... better not. Yeah. <laughs> Go fuck yourself with that dad joke. <laughs> Back to the basement. Go fuck Back yourself with that dad joke. Wow. So, so the usual overnight activities took place, and the planter's three white officers went ashore for the night, as they so often did. That worked out well. While the slave crew <laughs> stayed on board. Now, at about 3 a.m., Small's plan really got underway. He and the seven of the... Wait a second. By the way, that was against the law Mm -hmm. at the time. What had happened a couple of weeks prior, uh, a barge had been stolen. And because of that, the... uh, And it went all the way up to Jeff Davis. The Confederacy wrote a law that said, if you were were the master of a vessel in port... Your white people had to stay on board. Yeah, yeah it's, it was not only a court martialable offense; like it was. Yeah, it, like you, you, you're serving jail time. You could go to jail. Yeah, <laughs> and we will get to that for these three poor fuckers because. Yeah, I mean, what do you say in that case? That, like a "oops, my bad" doesn't even. Re- doesn't was, like, I mean, they were like, "Hey, hey, hey, Bob, watch the boat, won't you?" And he's like, "Yes, sir, you I got will." It. <laughs> What do you say to somebody who loses their shit that way? Like, 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 like hey, Tiger, how you doing? They're like, I don't know if that really makes them feel better. He was walking back. Where did we park the warship? Oh. He's like clicking his keys and it's not beeping. Yeah. 
It's like I that, think that's how boats work. Like, I wasn't in the Navy. Pocket? It's like, it, it, yeah, it's, it, yeah, they, yeah. They, it, they I, I do fall. know this. They got a fall. I do know this about everything in the Army and the Navy. Oh, Air that's Force. our new children's uh, book. When Michael right. lost the USS Gettysburg, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nothing has a key. So if you're ever in a motor pool, oh yeah, they, they just and it's turn just on. like that gif I always use from basketball. They got down to the dock and oh, 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 oh. <laughs> they they but, dropped their like sack of cotton and whatever the fuck else they had in the south, whatever they use for currency. They're, they're yeah. piles of they're sacks full of white flags they were going to use in a couple years. <laughs> But the Confederate flag. Yeah, the best. Yeah, the best Confederate flag. But these three dumb shits had a few hours left until they figured out that their ship was gone. So at about 3 a.m., Small's plan got underway. He and seven of the other eight enslaved crewmen fired up the engines and pushed off from the wharf. The planner's quiet engines attracting little notice. Smalls went into the captain's cabin, put him on the spare Confederate uniform from the captain's sea chest, and the captain's favorite straw boating hat. Motherfucker! It's so good. I, I didn't it realize that, and I looked. I, I did look into this. I didn't realize how common those were. Oh yeah, like the, they were kind of a thing. Most Confederate captains wore big floppy straw, straw hats. hats. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I, I I had no idea. So I was kind of uh, shocked. It, by does, that. it does very it little a, to not. It does very little to dispense the stereotype of the Confederates as a bunch yeah. of hay seeds. Don't be fair. <laughs> Out of the water, yeah. the son's a mean son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. No, so well, hats are practically, no, practically, it makes a ton of sense. Hey, a fedora was too much like the Mexicans. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> you mean a sombrero? Or, uh, no, no. A, a, um, Sarapa? A, a Panama hat. Panama hat, okay. That would have looked too Spanish. <laughs> I don't know why you went into men's right activist territory, but okay. <laughs> so what, what I, I our, knew what you what meant. Do you by yeah, come on. What do you think our naval uniforms? Well, no, I was I being sarcastic like about the detectives from Dexter. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, motherfucker! <laughs> so, so Small sailed the planter past the heavily guarded southern wharf and stopped at a prearranged point upriver. Yeah, he went. Your first instinct would be to get the hell out of Dodge. No, he just went further into Dodge. No, my dude had a plan. And I'll, See, tell, you, I'll tell you what. He knew their defenses well enough to know that they didn't really exist for this circumstance. Correct. But he stopped at a prearranged point on the southern shore of the river to pick up his wife, Hannah, their two children, four other wives from the planter's mm-hmm. slave crew, as well as another child. Yeah, I mean, like, it. Robert had tried to buy their their. Family, not their freedom, but he did try to buy them, yeah, so that they could all be together. together. And at this point, the the only way for that that to happen, because uh, the man was making a dollar a week, he had a hundred dollars, and they said it's eight hundred dollars. Yeah. So that's not quite going to work out. But um, whenever whenever you would flee as a slave, there were a lot of things that really counted against you, and one yeah. was definitely children. Uh, they slowed you down. Uh, yeah. An overland road, an overland road was. It was incredibly perilous because everybody was looking for you. Yeah. Like, even if there were no reports of escaped slaves, there were slave catchers out on every oh, yeah. road. And Robert Jr. was time. an infant. Yeah. Yeah. Which meant that he was the baby start. The baby starts crying. You're a deep you're shit. Done. Yeah. Yeah. Because those, those dogs, those that. dogs can hear that crying baby. Yes, mm-hmm. they can. Now, getting the ship away from the wharf, going upriver to pick up your family, that was the easy part. Mm-hmm. Now, the path that Smalls would be forced to take out of Charleston Harbor would take him past five different forts and large gun batteries, any of which would be able to take the planter apart with ease, as well as a series of picket boats and guard ships. Now, two things Robert Smalls had on his side, however, was a knowledge of the correct military signals to give 
and a talent for performance. Now, Smalls had closely watched the behaviors and mannerisms of the, ca- of the planter's captain, Charles Relier. That was what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> he practiced the dude's fucking gait. Yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. And the, he was doing it at 4.30 in the morning, yeah. so skin color didn't mean a goddamn thing. And one by one, as the planter sailed past the fortifications and guard boats, he imitated Relier's movements and mannerisms to go along with the stolen clothing and successfully fooled all observers into thinking that Relier was still in control of the ship. The only one obstacle that remained, Fort Sumter, at the mouth of the harbor. Now, Sumter, however, bristled with guns and was crawling with Confederate soldiers and observers as the fort was the linchpin to the defense of Charleston against the uh, Union Navy attack. But Smalls managed to fool them, too, at least for the time it took to get past the fort. Now, someone in Sumter raised the alarm at about 4.30 a.m., and the fort's guns opened fire on the planter, but she was already slipping out of range, and Smalls had extinguished all the lamps on the ship just in time, making her almost impossible to spot in the darkness. And with 15 freed slaves on board, Robert Smalls and the planter slipped away into the night without being hit by the fort's fire or being caught by any of the guard vessels that gave chase. At one of the at one of the checkpoints, and it might have been Sumter, one of my favorite parts of the story is that uh, one of the Confederate soldiers that was at the fort listening, you know, not not putting out the alert, mm-hmm. um, yells out to the planter, hey, take down one of them damn Yankee ships or bring one back for me. <laughs> at which point, <laughs> at which point, Robert Smalls didn't know what to so do, much. so he just says, aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, uh, and it that, gives him the, an extra two and it keeps going. That's the equivalent of in uh, in Hot Fuzz. Yeah. Where he just says, you're... so smalls turned south reigniting the lamps and headed straight for the last position where he'd seen union ships on blockade the confederate naval ensign was pulled down and replaced with a white bed sheet that smalls wife had brought with her spotting the planters lights the union sailing cruiser uss onward and her captain john frederick nichols moved to intercept her and was about to open fire until the sun began to rise just in time to reveal the white sheet flying from the mast. And it's not like they ran out the cannons. They loaded the guns. Yeah. yeah. And like this, they, they rolled out. Ready. Well, Captain Nichols' account reads thus, quote, Just as number three port gun was being elevated, someone cried out, I see something that looks like a white flag. And true enough, there was something flying on the steamer that would have been white by the application of soap and water. Dirty sheet. Yeah. As she neared us, we looked in vain for the face of a white man. When they discovered that we would not fire on them, there was a rush of contrabands out on her deck. Some dancing, some singing, whistling, jumping, and others stood looking towards Fort Sumter and muttering all sorts of maledictions against it and the heart of the South generally. <laughs> as, as the, well, that's what Charleston was known as. It was, called, it was called the heart of the South. Yeah. So as the steamer came near, that's continuing the quote, as the steamer came near and under the stern of the onward, one of the men stepped forward and taking off his hat shouted, Good morning, sir. I brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. That man was Robert, <laughs> Robert Smalls. End quote. <laughs> so Smalls surrendered the planter and her cargo to Nichols, asking in return only for an American flag to fly from her mast. And that was where fate really intervened because there was there were so many things. The fact that the guns were loaded yeah. on the onward. Uh, they were when, elevated. When, when, when Hannah Jones, when Hannah Jones, <laughs> three minutes faster, the planter gets blown out of the water. Yeah, yep. I mean they're they're hey, dialing in. 
and Hannah Jones brought that bed sheet. Robert Smalls, for all the wonderful things he's done up to this point in the story, he didn't have. He a forgot. Yeah. 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 He didn't even think about it. Yeah. He didn't think about it, and then they got halfway between Sumter and on their way to the, on yeah. their way to the blockade, and it's like that, oh shit moment, and then Hannah's like, "Hey, honey, I got this for you." As so, often, <laughs> so often happens. Yep. A sensible woman helps out an ambitious man. So Nichols, uh, realizing what he had now, escorts the planner down to Port Royal, South Carolina, just south of Beaufort. Uh, so at this point in the war, a lot of people don't know this, but at this point, the Union had staged an amphibious landing in the southern part of uh, South Carolina and the northern part of Georgia, and it carved out a military enclave, heavily fortified it in some in like trench lines, gun batteries, forts like Fort Pulaski, which is enormous, mm-hmm. um, yep. and they had carved out this part of the central southern coast to use as a base of operations. And so not only was it a base of operations for both the Union Army and the Union Navy, it was also an enclave from which slaves could escape. Yep. Now, it was tough for a lot of slaves to get there because the Confederate troops had basically created siege lines around it, and there were slave catcher patrols, but there were thousands of slaves that escaped into this enclave. Now, the commander of the naval station there, Rear Admiral Samuel DuPont, from, yes, that DuPont family, mm-hmm. uh, received Smalls on the planter and realized that he'd hit a mother load. Not only had an armed Confederate ship been delivered into Union hands, as well as the four heavy guns, the stores contained within, and 15 slaves been freed, but DuPont soon realized that Robert Smalls was a talented pilot with an extensive knowledge not only of the local waters, but also of the Confederate defenses in the area. Because he put them in fucking place. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was. He was assen- I mean, the torpedoes. It, they yeah. essentially captured an officer. Yeah. yeah. But the only the only reason why they didn't capture an officer is because a slave was not allowed to have a rank. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. He was the uh, uh, virtual pilot. Yeah. yeah. Was, was what they called it. But I mean, it was. Well, he was the XL. Well, in addition, <laughs> yeah. This intelligence get was backed up by the code book containing an extensive yes. list of Confederate signals, as well as maps detailing not only all of the fortifications in the Charleston area but all of the locations of all the mines and torpedoes that had been laid to defend the area. Smalls had also, uh, Small also had knowledge of these minefields, having participated in laying most of them, and also brought with him word of the dismantling and shifting of Confederate defenses and troop concentrations. Now, Union commanders were pleased to learn from Smalls that contrary to their calculations, only a few thousand Confederate troops were in the Charleston area, and that the uh, fortifications on Coles Island, where the planter had picked up the heavy guns, were being dismantled. Coles Island was captured without a fight a week later, and the Stono Inlet would remain a Union base of operations and a refuge for escaped slaves for the remainder of the war. And this is literally what you refer to as a gold mine. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this absolute game changer. This, this, this is absolute game changer. This is the Civil yeah. War equivalent of Enigma. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. At least on a regional basis. Yeah. It's, and, yeah, and it's we've already established that Charleston outrage. is the linchpin. Yeah. yeah. So, Smalls quickly became a 19th century media sensation. Newspapers and magazines were quick to report his exploits, giving good news at a time when major Union victories were few and far between. And he was hailed as a hero throughout the North. Uh, In the South, however, he was decried as a villain. A large reward was posted for his death or capture, and the media throughout the South demanded that the three white officers who left the planter in Smalls' care be summarily executed. Now, as we mentioned, there was a court-martial, and two of the three officers were found guilty of dereliction of duty and harsh sentences were recommended, but the sentences were commuted in the interest of uh, making needed officers 
available for the war effort of going, we don't have a lot of people because the South had a horrible manpower yeah, problem yeah, throughout yeah, the war. Yeah. You don't got a lot of people, you can't be going off killing them. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Congress passed a bill awarding the prize money for the planter and its cargo to Smalls and his crew. Smalls' share would be about $1,500, about thirty-eight and a half grand today. But Smalls and his men got screwed hard in the evaluation of the planter's value, which was estimated at $9,000. Now, analysis after the war showed that at average wartime values, the value of the planter and its cargo was somewhere in the range of sixty-five dollars to $70,000. Holy shit. Yeah, they low-balled him by about... 800%. Sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. Well, let's not let's not forget the attitude of the North at the time. It wasn't exactly... You can't think of the Union and the Confederacy in this era being that, okay, yeah. they, you know, the, the Confederacy had slavery and the North was full of these great emancipators that thought very highly of no. uh, people of color. Emancip they didn't. Emancip <laughs> emancipation became a goal for the North as a tool to defeating the rebellion. Yes. Right. Yeah, was it, it, what, it, there were a lot of superior, uh, white supremacists in the North at the time. Oh, absolutely. You, yeah. you remember when we talked about the Five Points gangs. Yes. It happened at the same fucking time. This, yeah. this wasn't like 50 years later. Oh, yeah. This was happening at the same time. So, yeah, we have to remember that with all the accomplishments that Robert Smalls is making throughout this story, he is constantly facing people looking down their nose at him yep. because they believe they were racially superior. Yep. Right. So, Man, how far we've come. It's, it's oh, truly yeah. it's yeah. just liberating. So Smalls was invited on a speaking engagement tour around New York and New England by abolitionist societies to help raise money for escaped slaves, but this proposal was vetoed by Admiral DuPont, who decided that Smalls was too valuable of an intelligence asset not to have in theater, and hired him as a civilian pilot to work aboard U.S. Navy vessels in the area, uh, giving him the equivalent pay to you, uh, a Navy petty officer, which was lower than he would have gotten were he a white man. Mm. Now, Smalls began to work guiding Union ships on operations to safely navigate the local waters and to help dismantle the Confederate minefields. As a result, operations in the area soon began to swing heavily in favor of the Union, and their military enclave in South Carolina began to steadily expand, forcing the Confederacy to allocate thousands of troops back to the area who were badly needed in other theaters. Now, do Robert Small's activities make a difference in the Union winning or losing the war? I don't think so, but I believe that his actions probably saved thousands of Union oh, lives, absolutely. helped thousands more slaves escape with the expansion of the Union enclave at this part of the coast, I mean, he absolutely made a difference, at least regionally. So Smalls was sent up to Washington, D.C. for a period uh, in uh, August of 1862 at the behest of Major General David Hunter, commander of Union forces in the area, in order to help persuade President Abraham Lincoln and Secretary of War Edwin Stanton to permit black men to fight for the Union Army, both of whom had rescinded previous orders by Union theater commanders to raise black regiments. No record exists of what was said in those meetings, but Lincoln and Stanton were obviously impressed by Smalls, and Stanton signed an order permitting the enlistment of up to 5,000 black troops in, uh, in, with the Union forces at Port Royal. The, regiment, the regiments raised there served with distinction, and their success helped pave the way for the raising of many other black regiments in the Union Army, including units like the famed 54th Massachusetts. Um, basically, Denzel Washington was in that unit, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, he looks good for his age. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, so you have these two regiments that are raised in the South Carolina enclave. They fight well. They serve with distinction. 
but they are all recently freed slaves. However, what it does is it opens the door to black volunteer regiments from the north. Mm -hmm. And soon, something like 280,000 black troops ended up serving with the Union Army by the time the war was over. All gallantly. Yeah. Served well. Right. Fought well. Scared the hell out of the Confederacy. <laughs> well, I can certainly understand why. Yeah. Wait, wait a minute. We're already outnumbered. It's, it's another thing we talked about in, a, in our Blackbeard episode. Yeah. Is, uh, he understood the value yeah. of, of these angry, angry men and turning them loose yep. on, on the men who, who chained them up. They, they can read and they have guns? <laughs> that ain't good, man. So, after returning to South Carolina, Smalls continued to serve as a pilot for several different vessels, including the now USS Planter, uh, the USS Crusader, which I checked out her specifics, and I made me realize that she was probably the most heavily armed gunboat relative to her size in the entire U.S. Navy. Damn. She was like 550 tons, like 150 feet long, 13 heavy guns. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> So, um, and then, but, yeah, yeah, uh, that, that number is usually closer to four. Yeah. Uh, if if, if yeah. anybody's yeah. not yeah. Uh, intensely familiar with outfitting gunboats. Uh, was the, the propulsion system just... She was a screw yeah. <laughs> just, It was shooting out the back. It just, was it, also it, guns. The problem is it just skips guns. across the water a few hundred yards on the stretch. Fire the Columbiads. Yeah. We need to get faster. <laughs> But uh, some of the other vessels he served on included the, uh, the USS John Paul Jones and the USS Alligator. Not an important vessel, I just like a ship called the USS Alligator. Great. That's there's fun. there's some very good names. I also do like yeah. that the Planter was the boat that took the slaves to freedom. Yeah. Um, there, was, there, was, um, there was one ship, it was... Well, actually, no, it was the USS Onward. It was, or it was the, they stole it was, the planter, but it was the onward was the, the well freight. onward the one that the the ship that the planters that small surrendered the planter to it was a captured Confederate vessel called the Orla the I believe it was the Orlando N Ward and so they just called it the USS Onward uh, close enough nice nice which I like so they could they saved the yeah. O on the back yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're paying by the letter here it's like a Toyota with just yo just put yeah. it in yeah. exactly. <laughs> So over the next year and change, Smalls piloted these vessels with skill, transporting men and supplies around the region and aiding the Union war effort. By his own reckoning, he took part in 17 significant engagements over the course of the war, two of which truly stand out. Now, the first took place on April 7, 1863, when Smalls was made pilot of the unique-looking ironclad USS Keokuk. A force of nine armored ships were to move into the harbor and use their heavy guns to reduce Charleston's fortifications so that Union troops could seize them and open Charleston to capture, all while avoiding damage due to their iron plating. This didn't exactly work. Most of the ships wouldn't stop the Confederate shots, and several of the vessels were disabled. The Keokuk moved past them to the head of the line, only to have her propulsion system fail about 300 yards in front of Fort Sumter, which gave the Keokuk its undivided attention for about a good half hour. The Keokuk was pierced by about 96 different projectiles, Many of them below the waterline, and over a dozen of her crew were killed or wounded, but it was Robert Smalls who was credited with helping to get her propulsion back up and running and navigating her safely out of harm's way. Now, though she sank the next day, Smalls' actions allowed all but one of the K.O. Cook's crew to disembark safely and survive the battle. I mean, how bad is uh, badass is this anyway? He's Jason Bourne. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. He's, he's Jason Bourne. He's an escaped slave with a bounty on his head. You know who he's kind of like? 
and it, I got this a little over and over again. He's like Jean Valjean. Yeah. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. Where like all of a sudden dudes like just like bench pressing uh like overturned ox carts. Yeah. Ex- exactly. I mean, it's he's so super badass. Okay. I've got an opportunity. I'm I'm an escaped slave. I'm gonna go hang out on tour. Spend time with my family, live the rest of my life up north where I don't have to have any problems. Not Bobby. No. <laughs> Bobby going back in. Yeah. <laughs> he went back in. He had a bone to pick with the Confederacy. So the second battle that played a key role in Small's life occurred on December 1st, 1863, when Small was once again piloted the planter, this time under Captain James Nickerson. Now the planter sailed into Folly Creek, about 12 miles south of Charleston, in order to support Union troops operating in the area and to sneak up river and bombard Confederate camps. Now, okay, the planter only has two guns, but now naval guns can fire explosive shells, and so that means if the planter sneaks up on you at night and starts lobbing shells into your camp, your day has gotten immediately worse. Much, much worse. Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're no longer talking about round shot. Yeah. Now, the planter, however, stumbled upon a newly constructed battery of Confederate guns near the aptly named Secessionville, which laid into the planter. Captain Nickerson ordered the ship stopped, ordered the crew, who were almost entirely made up of freed slaves, to surrender, and fled into the coal bunker. Despite the damage to the ship, Smalls, who feared that the black crewmen would not be treated as prisoners of war and would be summarily executed, which happened quite a lot. Probably true. Yeah. Uh, refused to surrender the vessel and under galling fire managed to get the engines restarted and navigated the planter out of range of the Confederate guns. He's just Han soloing his way through naval engagements. He really is. Like, yeah, and he doesn't even enough. have Chewbacca. No. no. Well, I guess, I mean, I would. I guess technically he's like Landoing his way through, but yeah. I, I don't yeah. come off sounding insensitive. So as a result of this action, Nickerson was relieved of command and the new commander of the Ar- uh, Union Army Department of the South, General Quincy Gilmore, promoted Robert Smalls to be the captain of the planter, making him the first black commander of a United States military vessel. Now, Smalls continued operations as the planter's captain, but in May of 1864, she uh, she sailed north to Philadelphia for an overhaul. While ashore, Smalls was invited to become an unofficial delegate to the Republican National Convention in Baltimore. He didn't leave the ship unattended, though. I don't think he had. I don't. I don't think he had the same concerns as they did when the ship was in Confederate hands. <laughs> just like the guys they had like chained up and yeah. like chained to a pipe and a brig. Like, hey, well, fellas, we're gonna go dry dock, and it's notoriously hard to sail a ship out of dry dock. True, you you could try, but it's gonna be tough. Um, now, throughout May and June, Smalls traveled back and forth between Philly and Baltimore, splitting his efforts between learning the role of delegate and speaking in support of the Port Royal experiment, a massive fundraising effort to raise money for the supporting of education and job training for ex-slaves. While he was doing this, Smalls was at the same time teaching himself to read. (laughs) In Philadelphia, despite Smalls' status as a military hero and his fame from reports on his exploits, he was multiple times thrown off of streetcars in favor of white passengers. These humiliating incidents were picked up on by the abolitionist press and civil rights advocates, and his testimony would be used as the driving force behind a bill it would integrate public transportation in Pennsylvania in 1867. Huh. Yeah. Fun little fact. Yeah, I didn't know that part. Yeah, thanks to Robert Smalls. As if he hasn't done enough. (laughs) And the hits keep on coming. Yep. Now, after the overhaul was complete, Smalls and the planter returned south to support William Tecumseh Sherman's forces at Savannah after their completion of the famed March to the Sea. 
Uh, for more information on that campaign, I highly recommend the documentary When Georgia Howl on YouTube. I was going to recommend the, the documentary Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's now officially back on HBO. Yes. <laughs> well, I like the telegram that Sherman sent because it was Christmas. Yeah. He said, I'd, I'd like to give you a Christmas present, Mr. President. <laughs> the city of Savannah. Savannah. <laughs> um, also, you got the chance to go to Savannah. Go down. Very nice town. Well, once, you know, once traveling is safe in 20 Yeah, or, or, you know, like, yeah. don't. <laughs> don't go now. Yeah. Don't go now. After there's Savannah a vaccine, will still go. be there. Yeah. Now, by this time, the Confederacy was on its last legs, and any Confederate forces in the area had either fled behind the defenses of Charleston or had left the area. So the last few months of the war for Smalls were busy, but relatively uneventful. In April of 1865, Robert E. Lee signed the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia, and Confederate forces began surrendering throughout April and May. The U.S. Civil War was over, and the practice of slavery, at least in its guise at the time, was at an end. On April 14th, hours before Abraham Lincoln's assassination at the hands of John Wilkes Booth, now Major General Robert Anderson returned to Fort Sumter to once again raise the U.S. flag over the fort he had commanded at the start of the war. At his side was Robert Smalls. Also did not know that. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that's, that's in. Uh, that's not in the Smithsonian article no. either. It's in another no. one. It's yeah. And it, well, it's I not. Think, it's I not history. History dot com. But they 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 missed that uh, minute detail. Yeah, that he was one of three men standing on the platform at the raising of the U.S. flag over Fort Sumter. One of whom was the commander I, of Fort Sumter. I don't mm. know if it was even brought up at Fort Sumter yeah. when I was there. I believe it was Robert Anderson, Quincy Gilbert, and Robert Smalls. Yeah. That would make sense. Yeah. Robert Anderson, they actually sent him down there because he was a Southerner. Mm-hmm. He was a native Kentuckian, and mm-hmm. they thought that sending him down there to take the fort would keep would ease the tensions so the shots wouldn't be fired. Yeah. So, Didn't work Major out, General right? Anderson... No, not, not great. No. Yeah. But it was an attempt. Now, Smalls was discharged from Union service on June 11, 1865, and continued to captain the planter as a private citizen serving a humanitarian mission of taking food and supplies to newly freed slaves throughout the region in service of the new Freedmen's Bureau, which had been set up to aid the newly emancipated black population of the South. After a couple months of this work, Smalls returned to Beaufort and purchased the house at 511 Prince Street, which had once belonged to his former owner, Henry McKees Sr., which had been seized by the Union administration in the area in 1863 for McKees' refusal to pay taxes. A court case was soon launched when the now elderly McKee sued Smalls in order to regain his property, but the court system, which was now run mostly by Northern officials, and some would say uh, overly punitive against Confederate sympathizers in the area, decided in Smalls' favor. McKee died soon after, but Smalls moved, moved in both his own mother, Lydia, and McKee's widow, Jane Bond McKee, who was now penniless, to live in the well-appointed house. Smalls also bought a sizable two-story building in downtown Beaufort to serve as a school for newly emancipated children. He partnered in business with Richard Howe Glees, a Haitian-American lawyer and merchant from Philadelphia, who would later become the lieutenant governor of South Carolina, uh, setting up several stores to serve the needs of freedmen and hired a teacher to help him finish the job that he'd started in Philadelphia the previous year, learning to read and write. This effort took a further nine months, and it's worth noting that it took a total of about 15 months for Robert Smalls to go from illiterate to reading and writing like any college-educated individual at the time. Remarkably fast. Yeah. 
Smalls quickly found growing success in business and spent the next several years expanding his holdings and investing heavily in the development of the region, including a project called the Enterprise Railroad, an 18-mile horse-drawn railway line that carried passengers and cargo between the Charleston Wharves and various inland depots. With the exception of one white man, the board, railroad's board of directors for its entire period of existence until the 1890s, all black. Smalls also owned and helped publish the first black-owned newspaper in the former Confederate states, the Beaufort Southern Standard, starting in 1872. Now, Smalls was a loyal Republican due to the role that the party had played in the abolition of slavery and the investment in newly freed populations during the Reconstruction period. And it was during the early part of this period where Smalls began to develop political ambitions. And uh, we could get into the Reconstruction period again. Whole series worth of material. Yeah, that's the the Reconstruction is like that. That's maybe even above our fucking yeah. depth. And it's, it's like, weird and it's messy. Too. It's it's, it's messy. remarkably ugly. And I mean, well, honestly, like there's probably one dude that ever could have successfully waded his way through Reconstruction. Robert Smalls. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he, he did a pretty good job of it. Yeah. He wrote in a. He, uh, I mean, I, I yeah. would have said Lincoln, but um, it, it didn't end well. No. no. <laughs> so you can ask Mary Todd. Yeah. <laughs> Mary Todd, this place sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, like, while while Lincoln technically navigated, like, like Reconstruction went pretty well. Oh, I need did, a night at the theater. It? Like, I need a hole in the head. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So in the, uh, with those uh, remarks of poor taste, uh, so small it's, 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 it's not too soon. <laughs> it's been 155 years. Yeah, we fucking know. It's been greater than 23.2 years. Yeah. <laughs> so Smalls would write to a colleague in 1912, quote, I never lose sight of the fact that had it not been for the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, which unshackled the necks of 4 million human beings, I would never have been an office holder of any kind from 1862 to the present, end quote. His primary political aim would be to reinforce and expand the political agency of black Americans. Full stop. Smalls was a delegate at the 1868 South Carolina Constitutional Convention, where he spearheaded an effort to make free compulsory education available for all children in the state. He served as a delegate in the Republican National Convention and the South Carolina Republic, uh, Republican State Convention. Now that same year, Smalls was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives. In his first term, he was instrumental in passing the Homestead Act and the state's first civil rights bill. In 1870, Smalls was chosen to fill the seat of a state senator who had been elected to the state Supreme Court and was re-elected to this position in 1872. He was considered one of the best speakers and debaters in the state legislature and was the head of both the Finance Committee and the Public Printing Committee, whatever that does. Huh. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I was called a master debater, but that's also mm. the reason why I'm not allowed to go back to the zoo. Yeah. But that's its own episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's our second children's book after the day Mike lost the Gettysburg. So yeah, I mean that guy. That guy gets a paycheck, and I get handcuffs. Yeah, where's the double standard? I tell you, <laughs> right? Now Smalls was appointed lieutenant colonel of the Third Regiment of the South Carolina State Militia in 1873, and would later go on to command the Second Brigade, and then as a major general in command of the Second Division, which made up more than half the militiamen in the state. Uh, he was also the first uh, black militia general in any of the former Confederate states. This dude's just racking shit up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he would hold that position until the Democrats took control of the state government in 1877. Uh, because these were politically appointed positions. Mm -hmm. Now, in November of 1874, Smalls was elected to represent the 7th District of South Carolina 
in the U.S. House of Representatives. He served in this position with distinction with a high reputation among his party colleagues, although he, along with the small number of other black congressmen, were subject to viciously racist attacks and insults from both their political opposition and from the residents of Washington, D.C. You have to realize, these, these guys have to walk the streets of D.C. to get to their job. Washington, D.C. was a horrifically racist place. Oh, yeah. Still is. I mean, it was the capital of the yeah. Union. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, like, honestly, not, it, it, not a lost chance. Yeah. No, it, it still absolutely is. Yeah. You know, the, the veneer of D.C. is uh, it's very thin. It the, is. The, the mall is, is not D.C. It's not. No. no. And that's, that's not even like a political dig. Like, I, 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 let's make it no, it's, clear. It's, like, it's, it's absolutely have it. There's a ton of equality, income inequality in D.C. Absolutely. It's horrific. It's, it's bad. So Smalls would hold the position for two terms until his district was gerrymandered and a higher white majority shifted the electorate towards the segregationist Democrats. And during these two terms, Smalls campaigned hard for the upholding of the rights of black Americans after the transfer of federal troops out of the South and fought to keep higher numbers of troops in South Carolina longer, fearing what would happen to the black population when the troops were withdrawn. By the way, he was absolutely of right. He was. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Uh, he also introduced an amendment to a bill meant to restructure the U.S. Army that would make sure that, quote, hereafter in the enlistment of men in the Army, no distinction whatsoever shall be made on account of race or color. He introduced the first bill to desegregate the United States military. He was completely yeah. ignored. But the amendment, yeah, yeah, uh, the, yeah, the, the amendment did not make it to vote. It was it was squashed on the floor, and the U.S. Army would remain segregated until 1948. Yep. Uh, if you guys want to know something uh, important that happened before 1948, uh, it's a bunch of important shit. Yeah. That happened before 1948. Yeah. Like the atomic bomb happened before desegregation of the United States military. First national television broadcast. Read some of the histories of the World War One veterans um, yeah. of color. Ask some of the home. veterans of the World War, the yeah. Second World War. Yeah. They're still fucking alive. Yeah. yeah. Well, how many? How there's many there's very War, few left. How many World War One veterans were killed in the Tulsa massacre in 1921? Right. Yeah. Hundreds. 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 I mean, they, they came home was, from serving their country and they. Well, they say that. Was, well, they say it was 300 killed during that, but they think the actual death toll may have been somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000. Oh, yeah, they, yeah, 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 yeah. I've heard the upper range of 2,000. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah, horrific. They didn't count children. No. <laughs> you know yeah. what's super fucked up about yeah. Tulsa, and this is one thing, and I, I, I probably made mention of it before. Uh, I had a 300 level history class at a university, and we we didn't talk about no. Tulsa. They skimmed over Juneteenth. The, the, the we first, didn't talk about Tulsa. Dude, the first that most people are hearing about it the was Tulsa a civics massacre class. was in the episode one of the series of the Watchmen, Watchmen series on right. HBO. I was, it, 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 you know, was, you know what a lot of people learned about Juneteenth? Yeah, June nineteenth of two thousand and twenty. Yeah. I, I was a, I was a junior in college at Pitt, and it was a African American studies class. Yeah. Was the first time I ever. I was about twenty six years old. This is why I get so irritated about such a, about the and, and and I don't mean this in any way other than it is. I hate I hate the fact that we have to have a Black History Month. Yeah, because uh, a lot of people agree taught. with yep, I get that. Yeah, it um, should absolutely be taught every day. It's, said, I'm glad it's American history. It is. It is it's American history. history. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's. Uh, uh, it was Morgan Freeman was uh, the first high-profile celebrity to say, essentially, what you said. Yeah. Said that I I hate Black History Month. 
I hate that we yeah. have to do it. Well, there are so many people who treat it as a problem, but what it is is it's a symptom. Yeah, correct. Correct. It's a symptom. So Robert Smalls was the last Republican elected to the fifth district until 2010. Oh, when, uh, this motherfucker. When uh, Mick Mulvaney was uh, the the current uh, secretary of Who Gives a Fuck. <laughs> It's not going to be in that position much longer. Nobody in this administration lasts in any No, nah, we got some musical chairs going on. Yeah. Um, and when the districts were again gerrymandered, that's what it took to get a Republican Shocking. in that district. What do you know? It's and amazing way, how South far we've come. gerrymanders their districts about every six years. They are, yeah. yeah. You want to talk about musical chairs. Stairs in Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, Pennsylvania gerrymandered districts look like my GI track. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. we... We just finally started hashing shit out two years ago. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Robert Smalls was tied as the longest-serving black member of Congress until the uh, latter half of the 20th century. Now, when the Compromise of 1877 was agreed upon and federal troops were withdrawn from the South, a group of Southern Democrats called the Redeemers, that's a high and mighty name for a bunch of assholes, resorted to violence and election fraud in order to gain control of the state legislature in South Carolina and to push black politicians out of power and create new segregation laws that were the precursor to what we would know today as Jim Crow. Now, Smalls was charged with and convicted in absentia by uh, collecting a bribe back in 1872 in connection with the awarding of a printing contract. Uh, from the announcement of the charges, he was, in, he was in D.C. They announced the charges in Charleston. From the announcement of charges to the conviction, nine hours. Nine Seems hours. legit. Yeah, you couldn't even yeah. get on a train to start going down and <laughs> represent yourself in court. Right. So it kind of shows you how legit this was. It's, it's almost like yeah. you had a public defender. Yeah. There that's, was also, uh, just so by the way, know, there was that's also so fucked up too. There was also no concrete evidence. There was also no evidence at all supporting the charges. They basically said, we think he did this, and they went, yeah, he did this guilty. Uh, now, he was pardoned as part of a deal where charges were dropped in federal cases uh, accusing South Carolina Democrats of election fraud. So a little, uh, little come comsa there, uh, basically saying, okay, we'll drop these charges if you drop these charges. Now, the scandal did manage to take its toll. In the 1878 election, uh, Smalls was unseated by George Tillman, a strict segregationist, and was uh, narrowly defeated by Tillman again in the 1880 election. Now, you had some thoughts. Spoiler alert, complete asshole. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rabid segregationist um, makes... <laughs> Like makes George Wallace look like a pussycat. And Not a nice man. Yeah, probably. And his probably bro- George Wallace is celebrated as one of one of uh, the worst the, people in American history. The yes. real the real dark side of American history. He was so bad that he's at least acknowledged. Yeah. Yeah. Guys well at this point, guys like George Wallace were a dime a dozen, and George Tillman stood out among these guys. Yeah. And his brother, Ben Pitchfork Tillman, oh, was yes. even worse. Tell us a little bit about Pitchfork. Uh, they were Pitchfork, brothers they were cousins. I think they were brothers. Well, I just yeah, my I, understanding I, was they were brothers. This man, and I won't even go into it. You're, you're more well versed on this than they me. Might, so. They might be brothers. Brother husbands. <laughs> husbands. Uh, we got a little commercial Applewhite style situation going on. I'm going south to visit my grandbrother. Oh, fuck. <laughs> if it were up to Ben Pitchfork Tillman, this is how bad he was. He was beyond segregationist. If it were up to him... The people of color in South Carolina would have been back in chains. They would have tried to restart slavery somehow. Yeah, this guy was running a foot race with Nathan Bedford Forrest because right. he was one of the worst people in the Reconstruction. Era. Exactly. 
Absolutely. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere. Now, it was found, however, in the 1880 election that Tillman and his campaign had committed blatant electoral fraud, and in early 1882, Robert Smalls was reinstated to his seat in Congress representing the 7th District. So, a little bit of justice there. However, he managed several months later to lose the 1882 election, narrowly but fairly this time. (laughs) But... And then in 1884, he ran for the congressional seat in the neighboring 5th District, which had opened up after a recall election earlier in the year. He kept the seat for three years until he was unseated by former Confederate General Wade Hampton in the 1886 election. And he served his final day in Congress on March 3rd, 1887. Now, during this period, in addition to all the work he was doing both in and out of Congress for civil rights and racial integration, Smalls ended up in a bit of a fight for his own rights and dealt with some serious sorrow of his own. His wife, Hannah, whom he had escaped slavery with, died on July 28, 1883. Later in the year, he claimed that he was entitled to a Navy pension for both his rank and role as commander of the USS Planter, but he learned that his official commission paperwork had never been filed with the War Department, and the paperwork that had been given to him at the time had been lost in the intervening years, as, you know, That's it reasonable. happens. In 1883, a bill passed committee to put Small on the Navy retired list entitling him to the pension, but was halted before it could be voted on on the House floor citing a fear of elevating racial tensions with the ascendant Democrats. Smalls would continue this fight until 1897, when a special act of Congress finally granted Smalls a place on the naval retired list and granted him a pension of $30 a month, 32 years after his military service ceased. Wow. And after serving how many years in Congress? Mm, he still yeah, had to about fight for that. Nine and a half years, yeah. He, uh, he was also busy during this time working like a fiend encouraging black Americans still living in the South not to emigrate to the North or the Midwest or across the Atlantic to Liberia. Hmm. He, he wanted to keep yeah. the, the population yeah. high enough to maintain their, their political agency. I well, guess. he was spot on with the, yeah. With yeah. the Liberia thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, after his time in Congress, Smalls continued his business and philanthropic efforts in Buford and throughout South Carolina and lobbying his former colleagues in Washington on behalf of black Americans. In 1890, Smalls married school teacher Annie Wigg, who would bear him one more son named William. And that same year, President Benjamin Harrison appointed him collector of the Port of Buford, a position that he held until 1913. And Smalls continued to be present as a delegate at every Republican National Convention, South Carolina State Republican Convention, and was present for the, uh, the um, it's called the infamous 1895 South Carolina Constitutional Convention. Yes, they had oh, one Lord. after the Civil War. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I say infamous because instead of a reconstructive purpose, though, this convention was meant to alter the South Carolina state constitution so as to completely disenfranchise black voters. Yep. Together with five other black politicians, Smalls wrote an article in the New York World to publicize the issue nationally, but the new state constitution was ratified and the vast majority of black South Carolinians, approximately 96% of them, lost the right to vote guaranteed to them by the 15th Amendment. You had to have $300 worth of property, Mm -hmm. and there was a poll tax, and there was... What was the other? There, there was a third thing, and... There were so many things. Oh, you had to take a literacy test. You had to take a literacy test. It went all the way up to dudes with guns just turning you away. And they stood up and they refused to sign that constitution. Yeah. And it was said from the chair that anyone who didn't sign the constitution would not be uh, given the funds to uh, to travel. Any of their travel expenses would not be paid. Yeah. 
And Robert Smalls famously said, I would rather walk the 133 miles to get back to Charleston than to sign that piece of paper. Yeah. And he did not. And he did not. He did not. It's such a good thing the right to vote isn't under attack on a daily basis nowadays. Now, Now, far we've come. Yeah. Now, this was a part of a wave of similar moves across the South in the 1890s that resulted in the exclusion of African Americans from politics and crippled the Republican Party in the South for generations to come and managed to survive challenges in the U.S. Supreme Court due to the majority, a narrow majority of justices being the appointee of Democratic presidents. Mm-hmm. Now, in the late 1890s, Smalls began to suffer from diabetes. Diabetes. He had the sugar. Yeah. And was offered the ambassadorship to Liberia and later the command of a black regiment in the Spanish-American War, but he turned down both for health reasons. He stayed as active as he could in local politics, although not on an official level, and he settled into a fairly active retirement. He was still very much a community leader and active in local communities, uh, committees and lodges, including the Chamber of Commerce and the Masons. His wife, Annie, ended up dying in 1896, and Smalls would not remarry. He put all his remaining energy into serving the community, and one of his last public acts was to intervene against a lynch mob who were set on killing two black suspects and the murder of a white man. By the way, surprise, surprise, later court findings show that the men were not connected in any way to the crime. He pressured the mayor and the sheriff, bluffing them by saying that if they allowed the men to be lynched, he had sent black residents of Beaufort to various points around the town who would set fire to the whole fucking thing if the mob wasn't stopped. And the mayor and the sheriff relented, broke up the lynch mob, and the two men's lives were saved. By the way, this was in 1913, and Robert was almost 74 years old. This is one year removed from Babe Ruth playing baseball. Yeah. Yeah. Also, 73 years old, standing up in front of an entire lynch mob. That's balls. Well, I mean, this guy guy made a... Kind of made a name for himself, staring dudes down. Oh, yeah, well, well, yeah. This dude walking sounded like a church bell. Yeah. Well, I mean, he stole a warship. Yeah. Picked up his wife, and then fucked off past the fort. <laughs> oh, good. I should escape the Confederacy. I'll swing by and get the wife first. I know now why it all worked out. Yeah. He was a Mason. He was part of the Illuminati. Oh, oh it makes. You know what? He was woke. It was the triangle. <laughs> yeah, it was woke. the triangle. Just imagine what he'd be capable of with 5G. <laughs> and Rob, he laid the keystones for that, that gas that's turning the frogs gay. Mm. <laughs> now, Robert Smalls would die on February 23rd, 1915, at the age of 75, from complications of diabetes and malaria. That's a that's a Have you South, seen the insects in South Carolina? That's a South Carolinian death. Yeah. 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 Like yeah. I so I was unfamiliar with a palmetto bug. Yep. Uh, I went They're to roaches step, that I went, fly. I went to step on a cockroach <laughs> and it flew directly <laughs> into my face. <laughs> so not only did did it fly, so uh, imagine my chagrin. Uh, it went for my face. Yep. <laughs> So, this bug told me to fuck all the way off. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so Robert Smalls was buried in the family plot of the churchyard of the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Beaufort, where his monument can still be visited today. It is inscribed with a statement he made to the South Carolina legislature during that terrible Constitutional Convention of 1895. And it reads as thus. 
suck my whole dick and choke on it. Love, Bob. Love, Bob. Well, that's the last line. Chow. Chow. Later, dorks, and he sails off in a stolen boat again. The line before that reads, quote, My race needs no special defense, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Truer words have never been spoken. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, the USS Planter was returned to civilian service after the war, but on March 25th, 1876, we, we can't talk about the end of Robert Small's life without talking about what yeah. happened to the Planter. March 25th, 1876, whilst trying to tow a grounded vessel near Georgetown, South Carolina, the Planter sprang a plank in the bow and began to take on water. The captain beached her, intending to repair the plank and get off the beach with the next high tide. But one of those fun little southern storms blew in, and the surf battered the planter to the point that she had to be abandoned. Upon hearing of the vessel's loss, Robert Smalls would comment that it felt as if he had lost a member of his family. So he, he tied a rope to it, put it in his teeth, and swam it back to shore like Jack LaLanne. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, with as amazing as this story is, I was surprised that you didn't say that the planter was one of the ships that they finally put down at the Bikini Atoll during the missile tests. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Taking part in the hunt for the Bismarck. It's just a radioactive <laughs> coral reef. Yeah, exactly. So, the wreck of the planter was lost to history until ground-penetrating radar scans undertaken by the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration in 2014 found and cataloged what is now proven to be the remains of the USS planter under about 10 to 12 feet of tidal sand. Wow. So they found it. Yep. Nice. Now, this is the part of the episode where we normally talk about the legacy of our subject. And boy, oh boy, is there a legacy at work here. Mm -hmm. So, first, there's the usual honors that a man like Robert Smalls accrues through having a life like he did. There's a long list of schools, streets, highways, parks, too long to go into here. But a few items do stand out. His home in Beaufort, South Carolina, which once belonged to his owner. And isn't that the most beautiful fuck you that I've ever heard of? Yeah. You know, what, you know what's an even better fuck you? He took in his wife. Took in his wife. And she was mentally uh, it's ill. It's got a hat on a hat, but yeah. yeah but she, I mean, was, like she was mentally ill, and he mm -hmm. had every reason to give it a big old fuck you. you big go, old boot. yeah. Go look after yourself. Go, go, yeah, go live yeah, in a mental hospital way. somewhere. He brought her in and took care of her. That so says what kind died. of freaking man he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, a, a, a lot nicer than I would have been. Mm. Exactly. Right, and that's, yeah. that's what makes him stand out as, as yeah. a hero. Yeah, but yeah. that home has been preserved as a National Historic Landmark and contains an exhibit about the role black politicians played in the history of South Carolina. In World War II, the still-segregated U.S. Navy established Camp Robert Smalls, adjacent to its Great Lakes Naval Training Center, to train black sailors. Uh, when, Mike, you might be able to help me out here. I can't remember. When did the U.S. Navy integrate? Uh, Late 40s, same time as the Army? Actually, they were a little ahead of the ball game, um, which is why you had... Well, they uh, weren't integrated well, in training. Now, you had people like Doris Miller. Well, yeah, Doris yeah. Miller. I mean, it, well, they they were allowed to be on combat vessels. Mm -hmm. They weren't allowed to have guns. Or they yeah. weren't allowed yeah. to... Yeah. They, they, could only, they could only, use, they could only uh, have, yeah, they, have they, certain they, occupations. That's just why Dory was a, a mess specialist. Um, but they were becoming integrated even into World War II at that point. Yeah. Um, there were certainly certain things yeah. that were still segregated, yeah. but it, the Navy was kind of ahead of the ball game on their own. Yeah. Well, the Navy always had been somewhat integrated. There had been right. black sailors in the U.S. Navy from the get-go. Mm -hmm. Right. 
Um, now, uh, a statue and exhibit about Robert Smalls can be found in the U.S. National Museum of African American History and Culture, which is part of the Smithsonian. Yep. I was there not that long ago, and I highly recommend it. Highly it recommend that museum. museum. Don't go right now, you assholes. Again. I keep getting fired because everybody has to go to Myrtle when, Walking Beach. Yes, with the conditional <laughs> statement of when it is safe to travel again. In these unprecedented the times. Fuck off. Oh. <laughs> um, now, a statue of Smalls is due to be installed later this year in the South Carolina State House, where they the have finally taken out the battle flag. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I really hope it's just the statue of Robert Smalls, like just kicking BGT Beauregard right to spuds, <laughs> helicopter him while he's doing it. <laughs> um, also, in 2004, the U.S. Army's largest logistical uh, support vessel, USAV Major General Robert Smalls was constructed and serves today supporting army operations in coastal areas. And yes, the army does have ships of its own, uh, basically larger... We don't talk about those. Yeah, well, no, we're going to talk about those. Uh, (laughs) Take it outside, fellas. I'm I'm doing this just to spite Mike. Uh, Basically, they're larger, more advanced landing craft that uh, carry and deliver... themselves their own ride, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. just wait till the Marines Nice not to use us as a taxi. Well, no, what what was it Nelson said? The uh, British Army should be a projectile fired by the British Navy. Exactly. (laughs) So, um, but but they uh, also contain things like uh, waste incinerators, uh, fresh water factories, and uh, can serve as medical facilities. So they burn garbage. And make water. That's not a boat. (laughs) Yeah, you guys prefer to wallow in yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what. I, that's hey, what the. Hey, that's what the Marine. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, hey, listen. The, it's they're, called they're Marine called, Corps birthing. I was say, <laughs> like, the like they they prefer the Marines. Spoken like a true Navy man. Like, uh, finally, of local interest to us, Fort Robert Smalls was the largest fortification protecting Pittsburgh during the American Civil War. Paid for and built by the city's black residents, it was constructed over the winter of 1862 to 1863 to protect the city against Confederate attack. Uh, it was built on Wires Hill in Arlington Heights, overlooking the mouth of Beck's Run, and consisted of large batteries of heavy cannon with thick entrenchments. Because, man, you thought the Union had cannons? Mm. Let's talk about the amount of guns in Pittsburgh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you should see some. If you, if anybody makes it down to the uh, Heinz History Center in the Strip, which I highly recommend. When it's safe. Yeah, when it's safe. Um, there is a reproduction of a coastal gun that was actually commissioned by uh, Lincoln himself. Yeah, he wanted uh, coastal batteries to have one-shot capability. It is a it fires a twenty-seven hundred pound projectile. Yep, any one of us could curl up in the barrel of this thing and take a nap. We uh, realistically we could report we could record the podcast in it. Yes. It's a massive weapon. Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, it's it's a reproduction, but uh, multiple guns were were built. Uh, in the city of Pittsburgh, um, and shipped the coastal batteries. These guns, they're real. They exist. I don't know that they, they've never been fired in wartime, but uh, it has a five mile, like that. That's not the envelope. It is to be sighted in, to be dialed in at five miles. Interesting little fact: some of those guns that were made during the Civil War were still in place in coastal batteries in World War One. It's super yeah. neat. It's super neat when you go to different places, hey, especially as a Civil War buff, when there are legitimate cannons that were used and parrot rifles that were used, they actually have the city that yeah. they were forged in established on the and it's it's uh, pressed into the front of the in in, in the front of the <laughs> weapon. And 
almost every one of them. If you go to Gettysburg, if you go to Antietam, if you go to Shiloh, the, most of most of the pressings are Pittsburgh. Yeah. And as we're talking about Charleston, the bat the thirteen inch mortars at Battery Park. Yeah. Which is gorgeous. at the head of just yeah, at the head of Charleston Harbor. You go to those thirteen-inch guns, and every single every one, every single one of them says Pittsburgh. Most of, uh, most of the guns on display at Fort Moultrie mm -hmm. are Pittsburgh guns. Every other street in this town is named Arsenal for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that that those fortifications were uh, in place meant to engage any enemy forces coming up the Monongahela Valley, and mm -hmm. would have given them a very bad day. The um, hey, every works. everybody has a bad well, day. Well, I was, was going to say. <laughs> They they would have ended up in Munhall. Yeah, anyway. They would have hit Munhall yeah, and turned around. <laughs> they were solidly routed by disease in Munhall. They were ravaged by it. <laughs> they encountered a man named Jojo Vinay. <laughs> so yeah, so um, actually, the fort's earthworks survived until the 1930s, when they were finally bulldozed to make way for public housing. And then their smallest legacy is a leader, warrior, politician, civil rights advocate. I mean, it's endless. I mean, the, the things he did to help the Union win the Civil War, like I said, I don't think he would have made the difference between victory and defeat. He may have shortened the war. Correct. He definitely, yeah. certainly he definitely like, it's, it, unequivocally, he saved lives. Yeah, thousands. Not only did, did he take all of those guns out of play, he took a warship out of play, Yeah. and he cleared the, the harbor of mines. I mean, the intelligence he provided to the mm -hmm. Union. Yeah, and, I, and, and it did cross my mind, but Padre was, you know, exactly... Exactly correct. Whenever he said that it's the enigma, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think he played a bigger role than you may think. Yeah, I mean, think, think about it. It was May thirteenth, May thirteenth, sixty-two. Uh, remember that I, I think it was overshadowed. The significance of what he did was overshadowed by McClellan's inaction. And the problems that Lincoln was having in the northern yeah. part of the theater. You know, the, well, in the, the Union had just lost the Battle of Shiloh, which was a major right. defeat. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, the, the victories of like Gettysburg and Vicksburg and even the, the draw at Antietam hadn't happened yet. Right, well, yeah, the, the draw at Antietam was, was three months away, yeah, four yeah. months away. Gettysburg was a, was a poke. Oh, right. like this. So, not I mean, the reality is year. the Union would have won, but there would but have been a time frame and the lives involved. I think would have been significant. But the, the regional there would have been so much more heritage <laughs> and markedly less hate. It might have lasted longer than the goddamn Golden Girls. <laughs> the regional significance <laughs> of the linchpin of Charleston Harbor, though, cannot be underestimated. No, I agree. Oh yeah, I mean, just by getting. Getting the shoal maps and getting those mines covered. We have talked about Charleston in the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s, and the 1900s. And that port is important in every single one of them. Yeah. Exactly. Charleston, down, Harbor, Charleston Harbor is incredibly important yeah. for I was four centuries. I was down there April of last year. The amount of Absolutely. ship traffic still coming in and out of Charleston is incredible. If you stand on the deck of the USS Yorktown at Patriots Point, which... When it's safe, super go down. cool. Check it out. Super, super cool. cool. You look out onto the water, container ship, container ship, container ship, container ship, container ship. Navy destroyer, container ship, container ship. The cool part about uh, those ships lined up is you can tell when the tide's coming in because they book it. Yep. They go. It, yeah, I mean, it's busy. hammer down, and that when, port is busy. When my ex-wife, when my ex-wife and I got married, we actually honeymoon in Charleston, and. 
the hotel that we stayed at is called the Ansonboro Inn, and by the way, highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful place. It's right on Bay Street. It's right across Ooh, from the yeah. customs, uh, the customs facility where everybody right drops t- off. Yeah, right in the old town. Yeah. And, but yeah, I didn't realize where it was. I go pulling into the parking lot of the hotel, and I looked up, and I'm thinking, man, that's a weird place to have a warehouse. You know, this huge, huge warehouse. And then I got to looking at it a little bit deeper and realized that warehouse had smokestacks. Uh-huh. That warehouse was a ship. Yep. <laughs> it was dropping cars off. Yeah. By the way, the Customs House, a uh, great little museum. In the basement, they have a big display in the old jail cells with mannequins and stuff. Who were they talking about? Your, Your boy, C! Oh, man. Oh, fuck. I can't even get the... I Sorry, I kind of let you down there, bit. Chris. Uh, I'll tell you. Oh, what, I, we'll I, I turned my turn my volume off. I'm yeah. sorry. We'll let you take us out with the uh, with the with the party horn. But uh, and yeah, so that's uh, that's the story of Robert Smalls. Incredible story. Holy shit! Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, what a fucking guy. Should uh, should be required learning. Absolutely. Well, I, I think that's one of the big lessons here is that this. I mean, it's a name that should be right up there. Should be a household right? name. That's yeah. not absolutely even, right. And again, even among people like my family, we study the Civil War, and you have to go out of your way to find this guy. Yeah, it's not like Shelby Fudge oh, yeah. written a book on him. You and I both have a stack of books about the Civil War, and not and, and maybe one or two of them even mentions in passing Robert Smalls. Right. It's so hard to find information about this guy. I, I don't get me wrong. The story has started to come out a little bit now, and I think and I like to think that it's going to be thanks to our efforts in making this episode today that make people aware and leads to the Robert Smalls movie starring Chadwick Boseman in 2025. <laughs> I'd like that. He would be my choice for the role. If you want to produce me directing this film, uh, send us a DM. I, 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 I only I only wish that this had happened 25 years earlier and we could have made it Edgar Selva. But... Mm. Well. We are going to He's a little to old for him. Yeah. We are going to have to portray him in various stages of life. Sure. Uh, Idris Elba also played essentially the, re- the Robert Smalls character in the new super weird uh, Fast and the Furious movie where he was basically like a superhero and just uh, did yeah. everything right. Yeah. So, so he like bench presses motorcycles. Like okay, so here's how to get this movie made. It's the prequel to are the Are you Fast talking about the one where the rock curls a black hawk? Yes, I am talking about that yeah. one. I am talking about that so one. So the only Fast and Furious I've ever seen was two. Uh, it played every six hours in the six weeks I was in the hospital after my uh, intestinal resection. We are going to have a full conversation about the batshit craziness that is Fast and Furious, Kyle. I refuse to watch any more Fast and Furious movies because they have Hobbs, but they don't have Calvin. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's hateful. Is what yeah, it is. It's mm-hmm. wrong. It's wrong. It's, it's cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> You know the first Fast and the Furious movie? They're stealing fucking DVD VCR combos. Yeah. <laughs> and then the last one, The Rock picks up a torpedo and throws it into a truck. Yep. <laughs> of course. <laughs> like, like, also, The Rock's in it now. <laughs> that was definitely yeah. yeah like, the Rock's in it now. The, the Rock makes that whole the Rock that makes everything just better. An endless repeat of Jump the Shark moments. Yeah. So uh, okay, so but the Rock uh, does un- make unashamedly so. I was watching the one after Paul Walker died, and he keeps getting into like predicaments, yeah. and the whole time I'm like, oh fuck, they're gonna do it, they're gonna fucking kill him off, and then they don't. And, no, like no. I, I felt bad for it. Yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Paul Walker. 
fairly genuinely a good dude. Yeah, he's yeah. Right. Oh, okay. Like he's, like, he's not mad. important. He's the Pariah, but he's the pariah of dudes that wear Oakleys upside down on the back of their head and yell at their wives at Buffalo Wild Wings. So like, <laughs> like uh, tell me I'm fucking wrong. Like I understand Paul is probably a decent dude, but like that man was an affliction shirt. So what you're saying is he worked for my company. <laughs> oh, you know the guy. So you're saying the Venn diagram between people like that and the people who are going to be upset when the Robert Small statue goes up in the South Carolina State House is a fucking. It's a circle. circle. All right. Well, so yeah, that's the that's the story of Robert Small. So what did uh, we learn today, Gary? Well, let's bring this bitch home. So uh, yeah, if you want to uh, if you want to follow us on social media, Chris, uh, you can go ahead and search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you want to find us on Facebook, you can find us on Twitter at Podcast TRR, uh, and you can find us on um, Instagram at TRR Pod. Uh, feel free to drop us a line, throw me an email, uh, hate mail, whatever it may be. Uh, let the three percenters know we were talking about one of those uppity blacks. <laughs> Make sure you <laughs> and, uh, hit us at uh, trrpod at gmail.com. Drop the pin and I'll meet you wherever the hell you want. Sounds good. <laughs> also, if you, uh, if you like what we do, if you'd like to uh, support us a little bit, you know, we have to we have to acquire the research materials. We're working on building our operation. Uh, you can support us financially for as little as a dollar a month at uh, www.patreon.com slash TRR pod. Every dollar we get through Patreon goes into building the operation and to bringing you better and better content. And I'm still <laughs> trying to buy the domain name for the Bob Crane Sex Cult. I want to put your erotic fan fiction up there. I just can't do it yet. Yeah, we, gotta we need more. We, yeah, we need to be able to host the domain. Have you tried .org? I mean, it might, be, it might work. No, I mean, this, this is a labor of love and I'm still operating in the red. So yeah. this is this is costing us money. So a couple bucks for your boy might not hurt. Remember, I just got double fired. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so over the course of doing this show, uh, a pattern has sort of emerged where I'm like the play-by-play guy. I've got three color commentators in front of me, which makes it like hurting cats sometimes. But that's okay, and I love it. However, we've decided that we're going to switch things up a little bit. Um, we're going to take a turn to let. The other guys kind of drive the narrative. And uh, our first handoff is going to be to the man across from me right your, now. Your co-host. This Chris magnificent Miller. beast, Mr. Chris Miller. Uh, and then we're going to let uh, Mike and Kyle take their turns. We're just going to kind of see how it works out. Uh, it gives me a little bit of a break. Um, don't gives you guys a little bit of a break. Gives mm-hmm. you guys a little bit of a break yeah. for me. Thank you, Chris. Thank yeah. you for keeping me no, I'm just saying, not a break from you, just in general. It keeps it fresh. Yeah, it, it, You do it so well, though. Yeah. But it, uh, we thought it would be fun to... And I'm lazy by nature. <laughs> but we thought it would be fun to let everybody kind of take a turn on uh, on driving the story. And it lets me kind of take a turn to be a little more reactive. And, uh, yeah, we just think it would be a little fun and to it lets track. us it lets all of us pick something that's a little more... We're a little more passionate about. Yep. So, right. and so Wayne Chris, the Rock... Johnson. Yeah, they're all about the yeah. rock, just so you know. Uh, and so Chris, what are we gonna be uh what are we gonna be talking about uh, next? Next time? week we are talking about the Black Sox scandal. Oh, one yeah. of the, the greatest sports scandals in history. Um probably the most egregious uh in baseball history. Um definitely one that spawned a shitload of popular culture mm-hmm. uh and gave us a lot of very memorable characters. So, yeah, including one of my, my more favorite mobsters. Yeah, there's there's mobsters in it. There's there's actual gangsters in this. There Spoiler is a, alert: Comiskey's a dick. 
Uh, yeah, so we got Comiskey, we got Kennesaw Mountain Landis, we have Shoeless Joe Jackson, one of the greatest baseball players of all time, who has effectively been scrubbed from the history books. And we'll look into whether or not he actually went through with what he was accused of, of, yep. of doing. So. so that's what we're going to be doing next time, switching things up. Chris is going to be driving the ship. I'm going to be like within a hand's reach of the helm. but And like Kennesaw Mountain <laughs> Landis, I am going to have an iron grip on this. Yep. Also, Landis was not the commissioner at the time. Everyone yeah. thinks he was, but he... Uh, he was the commissioner of the year after. Chris, we, Chris, we have a whole episode. Chris, we have a whole episode next time. time for you. No, it's like, like, so he wasn't a dick for that. He was a dick for literally everything, everything else. <laughs> everything. Uh, I'm going to try to not talk about it because I hate that man so yep. much. So, yeah, so that's what we've got coming up next time. Thank you for listening, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the story. I know we had a great time talking about it. Um, everybody, please be safe out there. The cases are growing again. Let's 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 get this thing back down. Let's kick this thing in the fucking. Wash house. your fucking hands. I'm tired of getting fired. With yeah. your goddamn mask, you sons of bitches. <laughs> what did I what did I say yesterday? If, if Michael Myers can hunt Laurie Strode in a big rubber mask since 1978, <laughs> you can wear a cloth mask until your food gets to your table. The Savini School is selling Jason COVID masks. Like I'll send you the links. They're great. Just fucking do it because I don't want to get it with. An immune system that doesn't work. My my favorite is a friend of mine. She has uh, on her mask a bunch of tiny little boners, and when people get close and they go, "Are those dicks on your mask?" She goes, "Yes, you're too close." Ah, nice. Offensive, ah, nice. you I like, it. I like nice. it. So yeah, with uh, with the whole uh, dick masks note, we're gonna wrap the episode up. Catch you next time, everybody. Hold fast, and Chris, <laughs> belated steed horn.